Welcome to the Politics of Special Forces podcast. In this 10-part limited series, join me, Kevin D. Stringer, and me, Christian Breed, as we examine just what Special Operations Forces, or SOF, does, and how that might need to change as we move into this new era of great power competition. In each episode, we will discuss an issue that relates to this broad objective, interviewing practitioners and scholars who have lived and studied this important capability and ask what needs to change, what should stay the same. We hope that in each episode, we can bridge the gap between soldiers, scholars, and policymakers, bringing informed opinion and ideas to this important discussion. In this introductory episode, Kevin and I are going to discuss the background and framework through which we're going to take a look at this ongoing question of the role of special operations forces in an era of great power competition. Christian, for this initial podcast, let's start first with great power competition. How do you characterize it and why the emphasis on soft? So first off, competition is one of the three heuristics to help understand the international system. I call them the three C's with my students, and they form a spectrum of sorts with cooperation, the first C, at one end, and conflict, or the second C, at the other end. Competition, of course, is that muddy middle in the center where states don't necessarily get along, but are not in open and direct conflict either. And as the name suggests, two or more actors are working to get to a place where only one can really exist. And it's in this international context where a handful of states, two in particular, are looking to challenge current international order, which has been led to a varying degrees by the United States since the end of the Second World War. These two countries, China and Russia, are challenging and indeed competing for the US for this position of primacy. It's important to note as well that these are heuristics, they're ways of understanding rather than explicit policies. A foreign policy based around the idea of cooperation, competition, or conflict can lead to heightened tensions when there need not be, as well as letting one's guard down when maybe we should be keeping it up. As you can well imagine, knowing which heuristic to apply to which situation is important, and I think competition really captures the essence of the relationship between the US and China, and to a lesser extent Russia today. More importantly, knowing first where, when you are no longer in a position of cooperation, and, and now competition, or that that competition has now descended into conflict, is really important and tricky. If you have a handle on the reality before your competitor or potential foe in a conflict, you have an advantage. You have the initiative. And so this is where SOF comes in, or Special Operations Forces. If knowing when to move from one heuristic to the other is important, the transitionaries become even more so, and indeed they become really nebulous. And for those of us who follow SOF, or Special Operations Forces, in particular Canadian SOF, thinking and SOF is set to work in the gaps and seams, and this is precisely where we see SOF employed to best effect, in that zone short of conflict, but it's still pretty competitive. Some researchers and practitioners call this the gray zone, but that term itself is getting quite a bit of intellectual pushback for a variety of reasons. However, SOF has now been used for the past few decades, and how it's been used in the past few decades might not necessarily translate into this context. Since 2001 and during the 9-11 wars, SOF has been the main effort or supported effort in military operations. Now with the focus shifting from counterterrorism and unconventional warfare to a renewed emphasis on competition between the US, the People's Republic of China, and Russia, we see conventional military capabilities re-emphasized. And I think this requires a rethinking of soft roles. Put simply, it's, it's going to have to change. 
appreciate that insight to great power competition. Early on, you selected a three-part framework in our first policy paper to help the reader and the listener to think about SOF. And you noted that SOF spans institutional boundaries, enjoys significant autonomy, and essentially is composed of specialized generalists. Can you speak to each one of these points just so that we have clarity for the reader and listener? Yeah, sure. And as much as I'd like to take credit for this framework, I really can't. The framework was first articulated by Etan Shamir and Eyal Ben-Ari back in 2016, or at least that was when I first came across it. And it's the first real conceptual articulation of what soft does that I've ever come across. And by conceptual, I mean that they break down soft beyond its roles or truths and look at what sets soft apart from conventional forces at a fundamental level. And these three elements are a great way to think about it, and I've used them in my teaching and writing ever since. In terms of boundary spanning, the first piece, this is the idea of being able to interface or work with those outside your organization. It's not just joint operations, but joint and working with other departments and agencies within a national effort, as well as working with other specialists from other countries in a combined manner, all at the lowest of levels. As for the second element, this is rather straightforward and well-documented in that special operations forces enjoy the ability to act independently. The, the costs of this were recently laid bare by the Brereton Report, which came out in late 2020, regarding the horrendous and criminal actions of several members of, of Australia's Special Operations Forces contribution to the NATO mission in Afghanistan. However, this autonomy is something that is supposed to be entrusted to SOF based on their skills and training. They're able to work on problems empowered by a full implementation of mission command. But again, this is based on trust, and that decision and, and decision makers entrust SOF to do what is needed and right with little oversight or need to report back. This autonomy enables flexibility and agility so that when employed, SOF can exploit opportunities and conduct high-risk missions with every card in the deck stacked in their favor. So this final element, though, is a bit oxymoronic at first blush, which is the idea of specialized generalists. By this, we essentially mean that special operations forces are great at learning. They're specialists in a sense, but not in the narrow manner that the idea of a specialist might imply traditionally. Rather, they're specialists at learning things quickly. You know, you, you give them a day and they can insert into a denied location and likely will get compromised. It would get ugly, but they pull it off. Give them a week, however, and they will drill, train, and rehearse and pull it off without anyone being any the wiser to just what happened. This is why SOF are such trainers of others. This is how they know, this is why they know how to learn. So, so, Kevin, you have an extensive practitioner and academic insight into special operations forces as a spanner across boundaries. Can you talk about SOF as the integrator and in great power competition? Yes, I'd be happy to. I think special operations forces become the ultimate integrator in great power conflict and competition. And I'd like to highlight a couple different ways that SOF integrates. First of all, they integrate within a joint force. SOF is inherently joint from structure whether it's, it's Canada, the United States, or any of the other NATO countries, um, there's a joint approach to SOF, air, land, and sea. And I think it already starts there. This experience from integrating those three domains becomes very, very relevant when we look at great power competition. At another level, SOF is an integrator for the interagency. If you look back on, on our, our past two decades of counter-violent extremist organization operations, SOF has often been the connector and linchpin between the intelligence community, the diplomatic community, and other government organizations that are very, very relevant. 
So I think this also carries over as an integrator function into great power competition. Thirdly, SOF for me is an integrator at a multinational level. Um, think of NATO and NATO SOF. Um, we've been working with NATO members uh, and NATO SOF forces uh, for almost two decades. This will continue both in Europe as well as in Asia in great power competition. And that multinational integration, which is supported by uh, linguistics and cultural expertise, uh, is inherent capability of SOF. Additionally, levels of warfare. SOF operates in a fluid fashion between the tactical, operational, and strategic levels. This might be not integration in the sense that we've been talking between organizations and different groups, but there's an integration and level of warfare that I think SOF can offer a number of benefits, not only to the conventional force it supports, but also to policymakers. And I think when we think about our, our, our future policy papers, um, I'd like to highlight the one on counter threat finance and unconventional warfare to demonstrate this integration function. Uh, perhaps continuing, uh, going over the topic of autonomy, Christian, we, we decided to use SOF's Foreign Internal Defense Advisory Mission task for the theme of autonomy, as well as a cornerstone for great power competition. And I was wondering if you could give us some insight into the Canadian perspective on FID, um, Foreign Internal Defense, and how it will apply in great power competition. Yeah, so the most obvious recent example of Canadian soft involvement in FID advisory is, is Op Impact, the Canadian contribution to the counter-ISIS fight in Iraq. And of course, during this time, Canada deployed and then later expanded that deployment in both size and scope to include several hundred Tier 1 and Tier 2 soft operators and support staff. They were mandated with advising and assisting Indigenous forces, in this case, the Kurdish Peshmerga in northern Iraq, as they fought against ISIS with forces which had established themselves in northern Iraq and Syria. And there were two reasons for deploying SOF in this context. First, given the sensitivities surrounding the deployment, such as a growing tension between Turkey, a NATO member, and ostensible ally, and the Kurdish forces we were assisting, to whom, of course, Turkey has a long-standing grievance, deploying a small contingent of Canadian soldiers could have, pardon the pun, impact. Uh, and this is a key consideration uh, for SOF by, by its nature to have such an outsized effect. In particular, when it comes to a regular warfare task such as foreign internal defense and advisory, SOF is perfectly suited to this task. Training others to fight is what SOF does, especially tier two units like our Canadian Special Operations Regiment or the US Army Special Forces Groups or the soldiers, the so-called Blue Water Seals, the teams other than the famed SEAL Team Six. As but one example to help reinforce how fundamental FID is to SOF, the culmination exercise of US Special Forces soldiers is called Exercise Robin Sage and it's a four-week simulated FID spread across 15 rural North Carolina counties. During this exercise, the candidates have to build rapport and trust among locals and train and advise them as they try to overthrow a local tyrant. The same mission set was what we were doing in Iraq as part of Op Impact. Training others to fight for you is the ultimate economy of force operation. A few hundred of our soldiers can train potentially thousands of indigenous forces. The alternative is deploying thousands of our own to do the fighting. And this leads to the second reason. The political will and indeed domestic support for large deployments of combat troops so close on the heels of Afghanistan's deployment, for the Canadian context in particular, was simply non-existent. And SOF offered a solution that would enable Canada to continue to support allies, principally the United States, in a meaningful way without again deploying battle groups or brigades into the greater Middle East and Central Asia. 
So in terms of how FID works in great power competition, we see the role shifting slightly. Within the counterterrorism and counterinsurgency context, FID is clearly the main effort, and conventional forces were used there either sparingly in a conventional sense or re-rolled to help in the FID effort itself. And from the Canadian perspective, we saw this on full display in Afghanistan in the 2000s, principally with the introduction of the Operational Mentor Liaison Teams, or OMLETs for short, that saw small teams of soldiers partnering with Afghan National Army companies and battalions to help mentor and fight alongside them. It was a task that looked awfully similar to what Robin Sage asks of, a can of its candidates, and yet was assigned to conventional units to execute. While some did a great job, others struggled, and not because of some great personal deficiency, but rather advising whether in an omelet or as part of a broader fit effort takes special skills and training. Remember what we talked about with specialized generalists? This is part of that. That's something that cannot be uniformly developed as part of a regular workup cycle for deployment in a conventional sense. Simply re-rolling conventional forces for advisory missions is incredibly risky. To put a point on this, a 2009 article by Robert Chamberlain in Armed Forces Journal made this, made this same argument. In this piece, he identified a series of pathologies to include mirror imaging and an inability to rein in their own egos, allowing local forces to genuinely lead. And these were the things that bedeviled American efforts along these lines, and I suspect similarly in Canada. I suspect we were not immune to this either. All that to say, in a counterterrorism and counterinsurgency context, conventional forces need to, needed to re-roll and take on some of the FID burden. However, as great power competition re-emerges, conventional forces need to refocus away from FID and back to demonstrating conventional capability. Put simply, conventional forces will do less advising and more reassurance and deterrence types missions, like what we're seeing in Eastern Europe today deploying companies and battalions on exercises that will demonstrate to potential competitors capability, and perhaps even more importantly, importantly willingness. Counterterrorism and coin, or counterinsurgency, certainly will not disappear, but SOF will, one, and, but SOF will once again be the force of choice for those missions with conventional forces returning to demonstrating excellence in deploying formations in a persistent manner. So we're seeing this in Canada for sure, as the anti-ISIS fight was led not by omelets, but rather by CSOR. Canadian Special Operations Regiment, our Tier 2 Special Operations Capability, as well as a selective deployment of JTF-2, our Tier 1 Capability. Hand in glove with that, we deployed mechanized infantry companies and battle group headquarters to work alongside our allies in Eastern Europe through a series of conventional exercises designed to reassure our Eastern European allies and provide some deterrence against the Russians. So you can see here how we divided it up a little bit and refocused accordingly from seeing counterinsurgency and counterterrorism in one view, in one perspective for soft employment, and seeing uh, reassurance and deterrence type missions in a more conventional sense in terms of great power competition. So that's the Canadian context. How do you see the U.S. approach to FID and great power competition? I'm going to make a prognosis here that for U.S. SOF, FID and great power competition will be a Clausewitzian schwerpunkt, a center of gravity for the future but not at the tactical level and more at the operational and strategic level. I might offer a couple examples to help us think about this as we go through this series on, on SOF. First of all, we've had a lot of experience and you highlighted some of the Canadian experience, training tactical units, foreign tactical SOF partners, indigenous forces. Um, I think the shift we need to see with great power competition is SOF focusing on strategic and operational FID building soft institutions so our partners and allies are sustainable 
in dealing with threats coming from competition or even conflict. I'd offer a couple examples. Um, Ukraine, Ukraine has stood up a special operations command. Um, NATO special operations forces, the United States being one among many, have contributed to that advising effort, establishing institutional structures. Uh, it doesn't sound sexy, but being able to pay, recruit, sustain soft forces in the field requires soft institutions. I think this is the next step in FID where we're really gonna have strategic level advisors to help countries build what I would call their, their resilience in, in a competition phase. Similarly, Lithuania, helping the Lithuanians think nationally about resilience and their border security is a type of FID that SOF can easily be employed in. Mongolia, Mongolia is in a tough neighborhood. It's wedged between Russia and China. Mongolia needs to think about a holistic national defense. Advising the Mongolians on resilience and resistance would be that sort of strategic level um, FID that I think that, that the US or any relevant partner could also perform. And last but not least, and you've alluded to it a bit in the Canadian approach, how can we train and advise partners so that we can leverage them in areas potentially where they have more expertise or cultural knowledge? A good example would be Romania. Romania has got a very, very robust, soft institutional arrangement. Um, they're very useful in dealing with the Moldovans or the Bulgarians, which are neighbors that they have a keener understanding of than the United States. So I think that sort of strategic operational advisory effort invested in Romania pays dividends by allowing them to focus in areas where Canada or the United States are, are let's say, less savvy in terms of the culture or bringing the right regional expertise. I think I'd like to jump over to this theme of specialized generalists. You've mentioned it twice now in, in our podcast. Um, we want to examine this in a number of ways in our series. Could you speak perhaps to self-involvement and employment in the areas of peacekeeping? The Arctic, which becomes increasingly relevant for a number of countries, and SOF as an early adopter and catalyst for emerging technologies. Yeah, I can certainly do that. And we'll start with the peacekeeping piece. Um, and then, of course, is interestingly enough, a, a long history of special operations forces and peacekeeping operations, which might uh, many might be surprised by and to learn that. But of course, in 2015, the United Nations released a doctrinal note simply called, and this is a bit of a mouthful, so forgive me, but it's the United Nations Peacekeeping Missions uh, Military Special Forces Manual, um, which I'm just going to call the UN Soft Manual for short because um, it's a bit, uh, bit clunky. But this manual indicates that special reconnaissance, military assistance, and special tasks, which is kind of a euphemism for everything that we, we didn't think about, um, are areas where SOF can contribute to peace operations, whether peacekeeping or peace enforcement. And of course, a particular note is a special reconnaissance task, which we didn't talk a lot about today. Um, and we'll, we'll spend a bit of time here now. And while this element um, lies within, a military, you know, within the military to collect information um, is something that most units have, the special reconnaissance task of SOF is unique in that it's about strategic information and by extension, rather sensitive, rather than tactical information gathering, which is what most units can do. And it's more immediate in focus and, and application, which is why it's tactical. So that the strategic piece is really the differentiator between you know, what SOF does and what other units have inherent in their organizations. And overall, the UN SOF manual does, a reasonably, does reasonably well in terms of optimization of SOF. And by this, I mean, you know, does, does the manual indicate um, that we're using SOF and keeping, say, with those three 
uh, principles that Shamir and 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 Ben 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 Ali talk about. Um, and so, we, if we measure the optimization in terms of how well how well the doctrine stacks up against those, it does a fairly decent job. And when it comes to the Arctic, however, soft would again have a role to play through their special reconnaissance task. And in particular, their resilience and training would give them the edge in the short run. But in the long run, they're just as vulnerable to sustainment requirements as conventional units, if not more so given their generally light footprint coupled with the harsh, difficult conditions that typify the Arctic environment. And I can't stress this enough. Uh, we're, you know, in parallel to this, there's a, in, in, our, in the, the broader series that this is being co-hosted with, with the CIDP, we do a lot of discussion on Arctic issues. And this whole concept of, you know, being able to not only uh, survive in the Arctic, but add capability in the Arctic is really, really tricky. And it makes uh, work uh, in the, uh, you know, north of 60, so to speak, really challenging um, for any unit. And uh, SOF is not immune to it. I just wanted to highlight quickly, yeah, though, before you, you jump in, we actually met because of a piece you did on UN soft doctrine. So I do think that's a very interesting area to explore, yeah. and it extends into NATO soft doctrine, European Union soft doctrine, just a, an interesting aside, but uh, peacekeeping missions certainly uh, provide a relevance for soft. Absolutely. And it's again, it's one that's really, at first blush, seems really counterintuitive, but there's there's certainly a role for them. And so the last piece that we want to talk about here is, is SOF as an early adopter or a catalyst for emerging technologies. And this is something, again, that, uh, you know, when you sort of stop and think about it for a bit, isn't all that surprising, but again, is maybe a bit of a novel angle that, that most don't think about. And as a colleague of mine once suggested, uh, a modest investment in equipment has an outsized impact when applied to SOF as opposed to, say, a conventional unit. They effectively do more with less than anyone. And those of us in the Canadian uh, environment know what that's like. So all three of these areas will be explored through this podcast series, but and the policy briefs that are going to follow in the in the coming months. And um, I hope I hope we can do some justice to this and really get into the the weeds, so to speak, on these three really interesting areas that don't get a lot of attention normally in discussions about special operations forces. So Kevin, there are a number of uh, publications and podcasts, uh, as we said, about about the subject of great power competition and special operations forces. But what do you think sets our series apart? Uh, for the soldiers, scholars, and policymakers? Well, I would agree with you. There's been a, a plethora of podcasts and writings about great power competition and how special operations forces should be applied. And I think our series and podcast are different, and they bring some value. And I'll highlight a, just a few areas. One, we're being sponsored and supported by a Canadian institution. And I think this provides a unique perspective, not only for other NATO country, countries, but for global soft partners, um, often we have a very US-centric approach to these themes. And I think just having a Canadian institution promoting this is already a differentiation. Secondly, you and I have picked a, a number of eclectic topics, Arctic, counter-threat finance. Um, I think this will provide a certain value uh, beyond some of the other very good offerings that are out there on the market. And last but not least, uh, we've really stressed a strong practitioner academic mix. I do think you have to have the right blend to really think about this complex world that we enter. And our, our series and podcast uh, in these three areas, I think will provide differentiation to others that are out there. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, I, I fully agree. And in fact, I just want to highlight this podcast series is in part co-hosted by the new Kingston Consortium on International Security. The new KCIS has the mission to undertake research on important issues in international security, provide expert commentary, and where appropriate policy advice. This is driven by the Center for International Defense Policy, the CIDP, at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, 
and the New Kingston Consortium on International Security. And we'll continue this proud tradition of bringing together academics and practitioners from around the world to explore salient security themes. But we'll now do this continuously through a dynamic array of podcasts, videos, and webinars, and written briefs. So stay tuned as we build out our content and our partnerships over the coming weeks and months. And this episode is just one part of that large new effort. Thanks so much for listening.